This podcast was sponsored by the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. My name is Clay Maitland. I'm chairman of the MMPC, which was formed in order to support the U.S. flag Merchant Marine. We hope you enjoy the uh, podcast and welcome your comments and suggestions. Hey, this is how you leave, leave a, this is how you scale a rat here. This dude been messing me all day long, so I left him on the fire hose by himself. It's June 2015, on the deck of the cargo ship El Faro, somewhere between Jacksonville, Florida, and San Juan, Puerto Rico. Roosevelt Clark, a general utility crewman who went by the nickname Bootsy, is recording with his phone as he jokes around with co-worker James Porter, who's testing one of the vessel's fire hoses. He took a line, and he it. Clark posted this video on Facebook, probably as a laugh, but now, after both men died a few months later when El Faro sank in a hurricane, Clark's videos provide a glimpse, narrow though it may be, of one seaman's life on the vessel. Clark was a father of five children, who lived in Jacksonville and who friends and family said enjoyed his job and travels at sea. His Facebook posts, just like about anyone's, talk of work, of women, love, music, television, and frequently about God. In his videos, he records authorities searching the ship for drugs, the cattle carried in trailers on the vessel, and scratch-off lottery tickets. He loved lottery tickets, and in several videos he shows them off for the camera. He seemed to buy rolls of them. If he won, he promised in one post to buy manicures for ten women. There are videos of Clark driving to his Jacksonville home from the port at night while listening to music. He said in Facebook posts that sometimes he was so tired he thought he would fall asleep while driving. In another video, he demonstrates the use of a metal grinder for fellow crewmen, and then the tool gets stuck. <laughs> then, at 2.15 a.m. on May 1st of last year, he steps out onto the ship's deck in strong winds at night. Oh, this is going to be a long night. Two o'clock in the morning. And it is storming wind. And all this here. The blue up, man. I hope this wind don't blow me off. See, this is why you better be scared of God. In a Facebook post that accompanied the video, Clark said he thought he would see the hand of God come out of the darkness. This is The Sunken Lighthouse, a podcast by Tradewinds and sponsored by the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition on the sinking of El Faro on October 1st, 2015. In this series, we've been exploring the casualty in detail, and in this fifth episode, we're taking a moment to get to know the 33 men and women, officers and crew, American and Polish, who died when this ship went down in a hurricane nearly a year ago. But first, a quick update on the investigation. A lot has happened since this podcast took a summer pause. Two agencies are investigating El Faro's sinking, and one, 
the National Transportation Safety Board has lost its lead investigator. Tom Rothrafi retired from the NTSB after 30 years. In the last round of hearings, he had said that Alfaro's sinking represented a colossal management failure, though he later said his comments were mischaracterized, and that he didn't intend to imply that he had drawn any conclusion about the management by Alfaro's owner, Tote Maritime. The biggest development in the investigation, however, is that the Voyage Data Recorder, or Black Box, has been retrieved and investigators have listened to 26 hours of audio. A third round of investigative hearings is planned for the winter to discuss this new evidence. Now, our all-too-brief look at the officers and crew of El Faro. Like his friend, a sliver of James Porter's life is also still on Facebook. The profile of the 40-year-old general utility crewman is still there. He apparently used it primarily to post photos of his two sons and his wife, Marlena. And he's there on Marlena's Facebook profile, too, where she's still posting about missing her husband. A few weeks ago, she publicly reminisced about spending time riding jet skis and fishing on their boat together. I must admit he loved being on the water, she said. Wish I could turn back the hands of time. On the ship, Porter wasn't just with his co-workers and friends. He also had family that went down with the vessel, his cousin, 38-year-old Jackie Jones. Jones was an able seaman on El Faro who, like his cousin, had spent 20 years as a merchant mariner. He had five children and, according to the newspaper Florida Times Union, was a rabid fan of the University of Florida football team, the Gators. He was also something of an entrepreneur. On shore, he was owner of the Wing Palace, a restaurant on Jacksonville's north side that claims to offer the best chicken wings in town. Forty-year-old Sylvester Crawford was a qualified member of the engineering department, also known as a motorman. He was a resident of Lawrenceville, Georgia. The family of 51-year-old Louis Marco Champa suffered its second loss in as many months when El Faro sank. The Palm Coast resident served as a refrigeration engineer on the ship after becoming a seafarer 17 years ago. Various news reports say he followed his father into his career as a merchant mariner, but Louis Champa Sr. died in August. Champa Jr.'s mother, Valma Champa, told NBC News that the last time she spoke to her son was when he called to check in on how she was handling the loss of her husband. The Florida Times Union reported that Champa was preparing to get married. Tradewinds has been setting the maritime agenda for over 25 years, providing unrivaled news, opinion, and intelligence by the best reporters, analysts, and opinion shapers in the business. With over 48,000 global readers, we're shipping's most successful news service with quality and insight that simply can't be found anywhere else. Our media channels include the weekly newspaper, online news, business focuses, the TW Plus Quarterly Magazine, events, and the Tradewinds app. Check us out at tradewindsnews.com. Of the 33 men and women on El Faro, the one who has garnered the most attention is Michael Davidson, the captain of the ship, or master. That's because his decision-making is at the center of the investigation into what happened on the vessel, and his widow, Teresa Davidson, has a lawyer representing her as a party of interest in the Coast Guard hearings. But who is Michael Davidson? 
The 53-year-old grew up in Casco Bay, Maine, near Portland, and still lived not far away in Wyndham when El Faro went down. According to the Portland Press-Herald, he joined local ferry company Casco Bay Lines as a teenager and was a captain even before he enrolled in Maine Maritime Academy. After graduating in 1998, he worked on tankers at oil company Arco and ConocoPhillips before joining El Faro owner Tote Maritime. In investigative hearings, most of the adjectives used to describe Davidson were just the sort of words a company would hope would describe its captain. Executives and fellow officers at Tote said he was well-qualified and very professional. Many used the word meticulous, describing Davidson as a man who made sure his I's were dotted and his T's were crossed. In the one evaluation of Captain Davidson that investigators found, he received a score of 5 out of 5 on all categories, except for one that was not filled in. The evaluation said he handled all aspects of his job with professionalism. Testimony by Mick Kondracki, Tote Service's head of labor relations, was among the most emotional of the Coast Guard investigative hearings. Asked about his final communication with Davidson on the day before the sinking, Kondracki broke down and the hearings took a recess. Thank you for the, uh, for the quick break. <clears throat> so my correspondence with the captain was I wanted to see if he needed to get time off, and he responded to the fact that, no, he wanted to stay on, on board so, so he could be home for his 25th wedding anniversary. <laughs> Uh, was this a telephone conversation? Email. Email. Thank you. But, you know, that just shows what a great guy he was. As Tote was preparing to bring two new ships to the route between Florida and Puerto Rico, where El Faro operated, Davidson was considered for a post on one of the state-of-the-art vessels. A slot on the new vessel was highly desired across Tote and its Tote Services Ship Management Division as these would be the first container ships in the world to run on liquefied natural gas as a fuel. And two months before the sinking of El Faro, Tote thought Davidson was the man for the master job. That opinion wasn't unanimous. For example, a crewing manager spoke in an email of dwindling confidence in his leadership, though other higher-level executives dismissed that view, and one Tote executive described him in a confidential email as a stateroom captain, one who's less engaged with operations on deck, as others that were vying for the position. But even there, a bosun on El Faro said Davidson had an open-door policy that allowed crew to bring concerns directly to him rather than through the chain of command, which he said was not common for masters. Ultimately, an administrative issue emerged that led the hiring committee to move on to other candidates. What got in the way of this promotion was the way he had enforced the company's zero-tolerance policy for alcohol use. Kondraki said there was second-hand information that a crew member had come back to El Faro with what was described as some level of alcohol. Davidson reportedly refused to allow him on board the ship until he sobered up, and Kondraki said that could be construed as enforcing the policy, but he said crew members shouldn't be drinking. Kondraki told investigators that once he informed his superiors that the incident may have happened, the committee seeking to fill the job for the captain of the new ship changed course but Kondraki said that all Davidson needed was a reminder that there were no exceptions to the zero-tolerance policy, and he was among executives who said Davidson would have still been qualified to run the new LNG-powered ships. Phil Green, a former Navy admiral who is chief executive at Tote Services, said Davidson was eminently qualified to be in charge of the company's newest ships. 
Kondraki agreed. I concur. Captain Davidson had been sailing uh, as master you know, as far back as I know is 2008 with tote, tote managed uh, vessels. Uh, and then he was sailing on the uh, Sea Star Line ship since 2013. Nothing speaks better than having been there, done that. So I, when I had uh, met him, I thought the captain was very professional. I thought he uh, did well in his interview. Absolutely now, if you think about it, any concerns about Davidson came up in the context of a promotion, not about how he carried out his current job. The master was on a shortlist for a coveted position, and there was a pool of some 50 captains across Tote's own ships and the vessels it managed for other owners, and even more available from American maritime officers, his union. Davidson was said to be disappointed that he was passed over for the new vessels, but he expected to stay on El Faro as it transitioned to the Alaska market. William Bennett, the blank Rome lawyer representing Davidson's widow in the investigation, declined to comment for this podcast, but he said in hearings that the data collected by investigators is full of comments from people who said the captain is one of the finest officers they've ever sailed with. Jacksonville resident Brookie Davis, who went by Larry, had spent more than half of his 63 years as a seafarer. CNN reported that he was a father of two who loved to fish and who loved his family. His daughter, Carla Newkirk, told the Florida Times Union that thinking about the sinking of El Faro was like living in a movie, as she tried to figure out in her head what happened to her father. The day that the pregnant wife of first engineer Keith Griffin learned that she was going to have twin girls, she also learned that her husband's ship had gone missing. Griffin was a graduate of Massachusetts Maritime Academy and a resident of Fort Myers, Florida. When 49-year-old Abel Seaman Frank Hamm became a merchant mariner in 1999, he wanted to see the world while supporting his family. This is his wife, Rochelle Hamm. He would come home and he would bring things from all different types of the you know, country and different monies, souvenirs and things of, like, of that nature. And it drew us to purchase on a globe and we were able to look to find out exactly where he was on the globe and things of that nature. So it was more adventurous for us, <laughs> fun for him. But over time, he came to favor the route plied by El Faro. Traveling between his hometown of Jacksonville and Puerto Rico allowed him to spend more time with his family, including his five children and his three grandchildren. Rochelle said he never expressed worries about his safety in his career at sea. But then in October of last year, she received a phone call at work. The ship was missing. As we've explained in a previous episode of this podcast, she turned her tragedy into a mission, spearheading an initiative called the Ham Alert. It's aiming to bring more third-party oversight to ships that might face bad weather, among other legislative changes that she's seeking. She takes her inspiration from the airline industry. One of the, the changes that I want um, to make sure is I want something in effect just like it does when it snows. When it's a blizzard up north, no planes move, and I want something just like that to happen. And not just focus on just maritime itself, but because of the incident with the Caribbean cruise ship a couple of months ago, I just want to make sure that it's covered on all ships and that everybody is safe. When there's a storm out there, nothing moves. After 25-year-old third assistant engineer Michael Lee Holland died on El Faro, 
his mother resolved to continue a mission she had already started. According to the Portland Press-Herald, Deb Roberts put a note in a bottle and had it tossed at sea near the site of El Faro's sinking. The letter promised that she would continue to advocate for a tax credit in Holland's home state of Maine that would cover merchant mariners who worked at sea for companies outside of the state. She achieved that goal in April when Maine's governor signed the bill into law. Sixty-five-year-old Joe Hargrove was an oiler on El Faro. He was from Orange Park, Florida. The last thing 49-year-old able seaman Carrie Hatch of Jacksonville told his father James Hatch before joining El Faro was to make sure that the Florida State University football team kept winning, according to the Florida Times Union. The team did a pretty good job of it. 60-year-old able seaman Jack Jackson lived in Jacksonville, and that's what led his sister Jill Jackson Dentremont to move to Florida from Pennsylvania in September of last year, according to the Florida Times Union. She wanted to be close to her brother, but he went down with El Faro within weeks of her thousand-mile move. Soon after El Faro's crew was lost, the family of 35-year-old assistant steward Lonnie Jordan released doves in his memory. They were also among the first to sue. This is their lawyer, Willie Gary speaking on the courthouse steps, as recorded by local station WTXL. We are here today to send a message uh, to big business. We're here today to send a message to, uh, to those who are in the corporate world that place more emphasis on making profits than they do saving lives. Because El Faro was a ship that operated in domestic trades, all of its regular crew members were American citizens. But five of the 33 who went down with the vessel were Polish technicians brought on board to carry out work that would prepare the vessel for its redeployment to Alaska. 27-year-old Piotr Kraus was married to Anna Kraus and they had a one-year-old child together. Jan Podgorski was 40 and also had a child. He was married to Malgorzata Podgorski. And 34-year-old Marcin Nita and his wife Agnieszka had two children. Roman Truskowski, a 52-year-old, left behind his wife, Bozena. And 42-year-old Rafal Zadobic left behind wife Agnieszka and a stepchild. Rotten, Connecticut, where Michael Kuflick grew up, there's a memorial bench with the image of a lighthouse, a reference to El Faro, whose name means the lighthouse in Spanish. 26-year-old Kuflick was a third assistant engineer on the ship. His mother, Donna Griffin, told the day newspaper that her son began to love the sea when he was a baby. It apparently never went away. At 14, he was volunteering on the schooner Argia in Mystic, Connecticut. After graduating from Maine Maritime Academy, he started working on the Long Island Ferry before joining American Maritime Officers in 2013 and quickly getting a job on El Faro. Rowan Lightfoot was the ship's 54-year-old bosun who lived in Jacksonville Beach. He was described in local newspapers as a very southern guy from Kentucky who also had an easy-going attitude. 
Massachusetts resident Jeffrey Mathias was a 42-year-old chief engineer for Tote Services. This is his wife, Jennifer, at his funeral in October from a report on Boston's WCVB. We all love Jeffrey so much and will miss him terribly, but he will never truly leave us. He will live on in our hearts and our three beautiful children. Hayden has his love of reading and his artistic ability. Heidi has his Portuguese fire <laughs> and that smile that warms your heart. And Caleb, AKA Mini Jeff, is just as crazy about all things heavy equipment as his dad was. Two on board El Faro were from the town of Rockland, Maine. 23-year-old Dylan Melkin was the third assistant engineer. His aunt, Deborah Dreyer, spoke to local broadcaster WMTW last October as the town still held out hope that he would be found alive. Just a great kid. He's, you know, smart, uh, handsome, funny. That's Dylan. Danielle Randolph, the second mate on the vessel, was from Melkin's hometown. Her mother, Lori Babelow, spoke to WMTW in Jacksonville after the Coast Guard called off rescue operations. To be honest with you, I almost I came to term with it a few days ago. I felt that it's there wasn't going to be a recovery. Um, you know, there there's too much devastation that from the little bit of debris that came up, I didn't feel that there'd be any. I didn't feel any hope to see them physically, but I have a strong faith, and because of that, I don't need the body to come to terms with it. Um, she's up there now, and we've just got a strong, strong hold and a strong hold in faith, and you've got to be strong and believe in God, and that was what was, was designated to happen. Richard Pusateri was another chief engineer on the ship. The 34-year-old was a native of the Hudson River Valley in New York, and described as a proud husband, father, son, and friend. Theodore Kwame was a 66-year-old steward and baker on El Faro, who reportedly had a knack for making his co-workers smile. And third mate Jeremy Rhyme of Delaware was 46 and had a wife and two children. It was conversations with old salties that drew LaShawn Rivera to seek a career as a merchant mariner. This is his father, Pastor Robert Green. He fell in love with traveling on the waters and going from country to country. And uh, he became a businessman, an entrepreneur, began to buy property, stocks and bonds. He was planning a future even outside of the merchant seamanship. So this was really his niche, uh, a way of finding himself. And he really enjoyed what he was doing. The 32-year-old Rivera was El Faro's chief cook. Green said it was not unusual for him to be sailing during the hurricane season in his 13 years at sea. It was sort of routine. Uh, he left just like he normally would. Um, ex we expected him to return. But um, due to the hurricane and the path that the ship took going into the hurricane, of course, that was not the case. And 
had he ever spoken of this ship before? Were there any, you know, any reasons to be concerned about this particular vessel? Uh, he actually loved uh, the, the particular run that he was on because it afforded him the opportunity to be home every week and to spend time with his fiancée, spend time with his children. Uh, so it was really a great trip for him because unlike some merchant seamen, he was able to be, a, be home at least one day a week. Rivera had two children, and his fiancée was eight months pregnant when the family learned the news that the ship was missing. As we learned in a previous episode, Green has founded an organization called Mending a Heart to bring El Faro families together to help them heal. But he's also working with Rochelle Ham to seek changes that will bring improved safety to the shipping industry. He's not convinced that in this day and age, seafarers should have to accept the perils of sea as a risk that's part of the job. Well, you know, just, just like it was when coal miners were going to the mine, there was some assumed risk when uh, um, production workers would work on the assembly lines, there was some potential risk. I think that those risks will have been resolved and solved by putting certain safety measures into place. And I think that this is an industry where maybe it's time for that to happen. Howard Schoenly was a 51-year-old who worked as the second assistant engineer on the ship. His wife told Newsday that he took great pride in his career as a merchant mariner. She described him as a vibrant and colorful person who was full of life. Fifty-four-year-old Chief Mate Stephen Schultz was from southwest Florida, where his mother told the news press that he was always around the water. Anthony Thomas was a 47-year-old oiler. The Mary Thomas, who went by Sean, spent 17 years in the Merchant Marine after a decade in the Navy. Herman Solar Cartes of Orlando was a 51-year-old oiler on the ship. His wife, Mildred, spoke to WFTV9 back in October. He just loves what he's doing. As, as I've told you earlier, you know, he's like a fish in the ocean. I couldn't take him off the ocean. He loves it. You know, I like, he'll be okay here for a couple of months, but his thoughts is always like, I'm going back to the ship. I mean, just like the same with his dad, and his dad is doing the same thing. I guess it runs in the family. And finally, we return to Mariette Wright, the 51-year-old who worked as a general utility crew member on El Faro, and whose story introduced the first episode of this podcast. I met her mother, Mary Chevry, on the worst possible day for a parent of a seafarer, when the U.S. Coast Guard announced that the search for possible survivors was over. I caught up with her again when I began to work on this program at her home in Brockton, Massachusetts where she told me how her daughter came to be just one of two women on board the ship when it sailed from Jacksonville in September of last year. She was a ball of fire. She was a go-getter from the time she was born. In fact, she never crawled. She stood up and walked one day. And she was always looking for adventure. From an early age, any money she saved was for travel. She went to England when she was 15 with money she had saved for three years for the paper route and babysitting. 
she wanted to meet Pete Townsend, and she did. Um, she went to his door, banged on it, and banged and banged and banged, and finally he came to the door, and she said, I've come all the way from America to meet you. And so he stepped out, and they took a picture of them. Chevery says Wright loved the sea from the time she was a teenager, loved it so much that it became the only place where she was truly happy. It's not like Wright didn't try other things. She went through high school, she went through college, and then, trying to find a job, she worked as a waitress for one day, decided that was not her bag. She sanded with the ferries. And pretty soon she called and said, Ma, I'm bored with the ferries. I'm going to see. Okay. Because that the ferries only lasted a couple of months. And she was bored. At sea, she loved the work and wanted to sail whenever a billet was available. Chevry says her daughter tended to bob around from ship to ship, and she had only been on El Faro for a short while. Wright didn't like it, though, and Chevry says she complained of leaks and structural problems and even holes in the deck. The ship didn't drain water well, and some crew called it a rust bucket, she said, and Wright complained of old lifeboats. It was the first time she'd ever complained about a ship, she said. She knew all these things were dangerous, and she was thinking about getting off the next time it darked, and getting on a different ship. Wright called her mother to say goodbye the day before El Faro sailed. Then, a few days later, Mary Chevry received a call informing her that the ship had sunk. At first, she held up hope that the crew had been able to abandon ship and be get ashore on a nearby island in the Bahamas. But down in Jacksonville, that hope faded. I just felt if the ship sank, it took everybody with it. Watching the investigative hearings months down the road made Chevry angry, particularly at the lack of response to El Faro's first report that it was in trouble. But she said that she hopes that this loss will lead to tighten safety rules for shipping. I think any master that goes out in a ship should be sternly told not to drive into a storm because it's better to be late with your cargo than never get there. In every voyage, there are a host of interests at stake. Ship owner, operator, charterer, and various cargo owners, all taking risks, but all insured. But there's only one party on a cargo ship that takes the ultimate risk, and that's the Mariner. So this podcast will continue to explore what happened on board El Faro. But before we turn to its final voyage nearly a year ago, we're going to look at the condition that it was in beforehand, and the inspections that were supposed to ensure that El Faro was safe. That's our next episode on The Sunken Lighthouse. The Sunken Lighthouse was brought to you by the sponsorship of the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. This podcast is a production of Tradewinds, which is part of the NHST Media Group. Visit our website at tradewindsnews.com. This program was produced and reported by me, Eric Martin.
check out another podcast by the NHST Media Group. Our colleagues at Upstream are putting out The Bid, and it focuses on the oil and gas industry. The song's Dream Instrumental by Chan Wai Fat, Nirvana Vivo, and Prelude Number 23 by Chris Zabriskie, Waking Up Instrumental by Dexter Britton, Sunset by Evgeny Grinko, Snowing by Peter Rudenko, and Window by Two Bicycles come from the free music archive on a Creative Commons license. Thanks to these providers for offering up their great work for free, and thank you for listening. Thank you.